I would invite you to take your Bibles if you have them and uh, go right back to that book of Jonah that Joe just read for us. Does anyone deserve God's grace? The answer is no, because if you deserved it, it wouldn't be grace. But aren't there some people that are just a little bit better than others? Aren't there some people that are just, they're just bad people? And whatever comes their way, they deserve, right? Because they're bad people. Who determines, who gets to determine who's good or bad? When I was thinking about that, I remember years ago, I mean, for the last 30 plus years, Charlene and I haven't had to look for a church, but when we first moved to Indiana as a brand new married couple, we started looking for churches. And by the way, where we lived in Indiana was very much like Wheaton, in which there were a lot of churches. And I remember one Sunday, and I don't know why I was there by myself as I thought back through it. I, uh, I probably now know why, because Charlene, our oldest was born 11 months after we were married, so probably Charlene had morning sickness and we didn't know it, okay? But anyway, so I'm at church by myself, and there was a guy, we'll call him Matt, it wasn't his name, and he looked at me funny when I called him that, but we'll call him Matt, and he decided it was his job I don't know what about me. I don't know if there was a sign that said I'm new here, but he decided to kind of be the guy that be my personal guide that day and introduce me to people. And sometimes he would introduce me to people. Other times he would point people out. And he would say things like this. Well, that's Bill over there. Now, he's good people. But that's John over there. I went, Wait a minute. How come Bill's good people but not John? Who gave him the right to determine who was good people and who wasn't? Who gets to set that standard? You see, if, if I get the, to set the standard, then I'm going to set a standard of good people that I know I can either reach or maybe get a little bit ahead of. In his, God, in his wisdom, God has already set the standard for goodness. And in fact, his standard is so high that none of us can reach it. That very familiar verse in Romans 3, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all fallen short. And, and, and that is bad news but there's good news because God always provides opportunity for even the worst of people to change. You see, I am convinced that no one is outside of the opportunity to receive God's grace. It is available to all as long as they're breathing. Well, when we last saw Jonah... He was standing a bit dazed on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea, picking seaweed out of his hair, kind of trying to get the slime of the fish off of him. And trying to figure out what was next. 
Jonah had been given an order to go to Nineveh and to deliver God's message of impending judgment to the city of Nineveh so that they might do the right thing and respond to He was given a chance to go to one of the worst of the worst cities and go to that, a city that was part of his nation's arch enemy, the Assyrians, and to let them know that unless there was major change, God was going to destroy them. And we pick it up where we already saw in chapter 3, verse 1. Not much introduction pretty straightforward. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And this time, verse 2, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord. I want you to know something very carefully here. It's going to come out. You've already heard the passage read. There are times when we obey on the outside, but we are not really obeying on the inside. Jonah goes. He goes to Nineveh. We're told a little bit about this city. There's a lot of stuff we could dig into it. It, it, I think it's peripheral in one sense. Somehow it was a big city. It was big for the day. It took three days. Now, we don't know if that was three days to walk around it, three days to walk through the neighborhood. We don't know. But we know that Jonah's sermon series lasted three days. His sermon is probably the shortest on record. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. Wouldn't you love that? If I, you walked in on a Sunday and I just said one sentence and said, let's pray and go home, you're like, yes, Pastor Scott gets it finally. You know, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's his sermon. He goes and preaches this sermon. This sermon of a city. At the end of chapter 4, we're told there are 120,000 that don't know their right from their left. I take that to mean 120,000 small children. There, were, there could have been close to 300,000 people in Nineveh, which was unheard of in the ancient world. That's, that's a megapolis in the ancient world. And, and, and so he preaches this sermon Forty more days and Nineveh will be dis- destroyed. There's, there are no illustrations, no catchy stories, no points of alliteration. Just one sentence. Now, some think that maybe that was the introduction, you know. <laughs> I don't know. All I'm told is that was the message. But here's what's really amazing. The Ninevites believe God. Now, Jonah didn't even mention God in the sermon. But one of the things we understand, even in those polytheistic cultures of the ancient world, there was always like a head god. For instance, the Babylonians had Marduk. The ancient Greeks had Zeus. The Romans called him Jupiter. And it was like the head god. So so, Jonah doesn't use God, but the Ninevites believed Elohim. They believed that, okay, this guy is coming. Remember, they also believed in the fish God, and possibly they knew that this guy had survived the fish God because he had survived the fish. Maybe his skin is still blanched a little bit as he walks in. We don't know that, but we know that one thing. The Ninevites 
believed God. That's the most basic point, and that's our first thing to remember today. God simply wants us to believe Him. That's, that's what God expects of you and me. Believe Him. How simple is that? When you believe God, you believe His Word, you believe the Bible. When you believe God, we're told in the Bible that belief is best shown by obedience. In the Old Testament, when you believed that you had done something wrong, then, then you, you turned away from that, and that repentance, that turning away, was revealed by some outward realities. You would fast to show your repentance. You would tear your clothes and put on sackcloth, the clothing of the poverty-stricken, to show your humility. Uh, sometimes you would put ashes and dirt on your head to just show your abject humility. It was an outward display of how one felt in their heart because of their sin. Now, Hebrew stories do interesting things. Hebrew stories tell us kind of the end of the matter and then back up and tell us what happened. So you, you read here that this fast was proclaimed and all of them, the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. And when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, sat down in the dust. This was the proclamation he issued to Nineveh. Most likely, that proclamation came from the top down. So we get the result at the end of chapter 3, we get how it came about. I mean, at the end of verse 3, we get how it came about in verses, in verses 6 and following. The king hears this message, and he responds. And that's another thing. In ancient cultures and in ancient households, the way the head of the household went, the rest of the family or the city went. So when the king says, and he probably wasn't the king of Assyria, this is not the capital of Assyria yet, probably the governor, the mayor, if you will, when he says, this is what's going to happen, everybody says, okay. But listen to this decree. Now remember, this is a guy who's part of a nation that is a warrior nation, that is a nation that tortures people, that is a nation that, that is feared by all. Listen to this decree. Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks take anything. Do not let them eat or drink. This is what's called a complete fast, a total fast. No food, no water. We need to humble ourselves before God in every way we can. Let the people and the animals be covered with sackcloths. Let everyone call urgently on God. That's, that's the word Elohim. That's the general word for God. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. It's a very interesting word, that word violence. It just doesn't mean pounding on people. It, it, it's a word that deals with lawlessness or terror or injustice. It's a word that, that, that carries with it the idea of dominating others who you deem as lesser. It's, it's a word that shows us kind of the source of discrimination and, and racism and prejudice. And that was the Assyrians. If you were lesser, they would 
beat you up. They would, they would dominate you. They would do everything they could to show that they had power over you. He's saying, we're going to turn from all of that. And he goes, who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. We're going to adjust our lives to God and maybe, just maybe, this won't happen. And I love verse 10 of chapter 3. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them destruction that he had threatened. God sees what they do. God sees the response. And he relents. He withholds the judgment. Now I know, because we've gone through this, I know some of us have struggled a little bit with that concept of God relenting. I mean, isn't God a God who doesn't change? Isn't God a God who's not shifting shadows? Isn't God a God whose word is solid? How, how does he relent? Why would he do that? The fact is, when you and I adjust our lives to God's truth, he adjusts his response. Let me help you out with that a little bit. Sundays in the Howington household, back when the children were young, were hard days. I have a great deal of empathy for families of young children. It just seems Sunday is the hard day. It's, it's not the routine. It's different. And for our family, Sunday was different because we live 7.2 miles from the church. And so we had to get up extra early, earlier than we had to on school days, and we had to get to the church because we had to be there first, not necessarily to open up, but we had stuff going on. You know, I mean, Charlene and I are here quite early every Sunday. It's just part of it. And we had to drag the kids with us, you know, and, and so Sundays could be hard days. And there were times, because of the difficulty of Sunday, that the behavior of our children wasn't stellar. They acted like pastor's kids. They weren't, it wasn't stellar. And, and there were times when that unstellar behavior needed to be dealt with. One particular Sunday, one of our daughters had been behaving quite badly throughout the day. We're getting ready to drive home that afternoon. Church ended at noon. We're getting ready to drive home. And that behavior continued in the car to the point where I finally said, when we get home, you and I are going to deal with this and you will be punished. Well, it's a flurry. This was back in the day where I was wearing a suit and tie every Sunday. My wife dressed and all dressed up. The kids had their church clothes, uh, you know. And, and so we get home, and it's just a flurry. You got to let the dog out, and you know we're kind of getting the kids off so they can go change their clothes and all. And and I just sat down in our living room in the rocking chair and just kind of took a moment. My daughter walks up to me, Daddy. 
I'm really sorry. And I'm ready for my punishment. What would you do? My heart melted. I said, oh, honey, oh, honey, come here. Give me a hug. I think you understand. I'm not going to punish you today. I think you, I think you understand. I relented. It's not that she never got punished again. It's not that we had changed our standards as a family, but her behavior had shown me that there was a change. Do you want to know the rest of the story? There is a rest of the story. I walk down the hallway. I walk into our bedroom. I'm feeling like candidate for sensitive father of the year. I'm thinking like, I get this. I, my beloved, my wife, joy of my life, laying across our bed, face down, head buried in the pillow, laughing. Her shoulders are convulsing with laughter. And I'm looking at her going, what is so funny? She rolls over. Her face is red. Tears are streaming down her cheeks. She can't catch her breath. She's just in such laughter. And finally, she catches her breath enough, and she looks at me, and she goes, she did the same thing to me on Thursday. (laughs) So, you know, there was that. Yeah. But you know what? I didn't go back. and I had relented already. I'm, I'm not going to go back on that. Here's the deal. God responds to repentance. When we learn something about God here, God forgives sin when sin is acknowledged or confessed. We need to remember that. God responds to our repentance A large part of biblical prophecy is not just predicting the future. It's speaking truth to the times so that those who hear will see and understand the wrong path that they're taking and they will turn and go the right way before it's too late. When we respond to God's word, he responds to us. The people turned away from their sin. They turned away from their evil. God had compassion on Nineveh. God, in a word, gave Nineveh another chance. A second chance, if you will. God gave Nineveh the same consideration He had given Jonah, but Nineveh actually changed. Jonah got more consideration than the Ninevites because he really hadn't changed. Jonah can't handle it. In his mind, he deserved a second chance. But these are Israel's mortal enemies. They don't deserve another chance. What have they done to be treated with compassion? Why should they get God's grace? 
And Jonah falls into this trap that's so subtle, and we could each fall into that if we're not careful. Somehow we begin to think that there are those who shouldn't be offered God's compassion. And sometimes we carry that out and say, well, if I don't think they should be, get God's compassion, they're not going to get mine either. Or I could even say, God, you can have compassion on them all you want, but I'm not going to. Verse, four, verse 1 of chapter 4 says, But to Jonah this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. That's actually not as strong of a translation as I think it ought to be. You see, the word there that's translated very wrong, the root word of that is the Hebrew word for evil. To Jonah, God's compassion seemed evil. I got goosebumps when I dug into that. That's just like, whoa, why hasn't he been zapped already? To Jonah, this was evil. God's behavior was evil, and Jonah became angry. And this wasn't just the old, dang it, shucky darns anger. This is fury. This is a burning with anger. In fact, some of your translations might say he kindled with anger. This is the red face, veins popping out, sweat coming on the brow, fury, anger. He became so angry. And look at his statement. It's actually a statement that has its roots in God's definition of himself in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Jonah says, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God and slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. So just take away my life, I would be better dead. God, I knew you were a compassionate God, so I ran the other way. God, I knew you would relent from calamity, so I ran the other way. God, I knew your character, and I didn't want to deal with it. Wow, he's livid with God for being compassionate. And you know what's interesting? I got to believe, you know, remember, we see the text linearly. I got to believe there was some silence. I believe God just let Jonah stew in his own juices for a while just to let him fume. And then God says to him, is it right for you to be angry? You know the answer to that question. I know the answer to that question. Jonah knew the answer to that question. In fact, he knew it so well, he didn't answer God. I mean, you just think about it. He is in the face of the living God right now. And God is showing so much compassion and so much grace and so much constraint. Jonah goes out of the city. He charges out east of the city. and He makes himself a shelter. I don't know what raw materials he had. He, he, whatever, he makes this little shelter. And Jonah, unlike the Ninevites, does not believe God. He's going to go up there on the east, look out over the city, and he's going to wait for God to smite the Ninevites because he didn't take God at his word. 
That's what's going on here. Jonah doesn't believe God. So he goes and he waits. You know, when I look at Jonah's whole argument here in verses 4 or 1 through, through 3, and as he charges out to build his shelter, there's another thing I realize. Selfish, graceless thinking is illogical. Jonah has, there is no logic. This is just selfless, graceless thinking. It's, in, it's illogical. So I'm going to go out and God, I don't believe you. I don't believe you're going to relent. I believe you're going to make him pay. I'm going to go out. I'm going to watch what happens. So he builds this little shelter. God decides to give him an object lesson. Did you notice when we were reading through this, you'll see it, the word in chapter 4, verse 6. You'll see it in chapter 4, verse 7. And you'll see it in chapter 4, verse 8. It's the word provided. God provided a leafy plant. He provided a worm. He provided a scorching wind. We've seen that word before in the book of Jonah. All the way back, the end of chapter 1, chapter 2, what did God provide? He provided a fish. The word is appointed. God is in, you know, we look at Jonah and we think, man, you are out of control. And God's looking at Jonah saying, you know, Jonah, I'm still in control. I'm still running a show here. So God appoints this plant to grow in the desert there, outside the city. It grows up. It provides shade. Jonah's like, yeah, okay, this is good. You know, I got my, I got my iced tea here. I've got my shelter. I'm kicking back. I'm relaxing. And we're going to see what happens. Jonah sits there all night long. The next morning, sun begins to come up. God appoints a worm. And the worm eats the vine. The vine begins to shrivel, begins to die. And, and uh, in fact, it says here, uh, Jonah was very happy about the plant. He was intensely joyful about the plant. I love this plant. This is an awesome plant. This plant is providing me with so much joy. He didn't do anything to grow the plant. He didn't even cultivate it. He didn't even put the seed in the ground. But he's happy about the plant. God assigns a worm now to eat the vine. The vine begins to wither. That was some worm, by the way. Uh, <laughs> the vine begins to wither. And God, just for kicks, causes a wind, an intensely hot wind that just kind of blows out from the, and, and, and makes Jonah so, so miserable. And now the sun, that Middle Eastern sun coming up, begins to beat down on his head. He begins feel miserable. Maybe he's starting to kind of see a mirage. Maybe he's feeling the effects of a little bit of sunstroke. And he goes from immensely joyful to his typical refrain. It's right here. Uh, Jonah chapter 4 verse 8. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head that he grew faint. He wanted to die. It would be better for me to die than to live. This whole story, Jonah would rather die than to see God's compassion, except if it's on him. Jonah would rather die than to see the Ninevites come to Christ or come to God. Jonah would rather die 
than to see God actually show grace to someone. God's interesting. Verse 9, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is! You bet it! I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. Once again, I'm just amazed that God says, okay, you've asked me four times, let's just take care of this now. But he doesn't. Jonah says, yes, I have a right to be angry about the plant. Yes, I have, the ang- I have the right to be angry about the Ninevites. Yes, I have the right to be angry about your compassion. I knew you were compassionate. And God says, you've been concerned about this plant, though you didn't tend it. You didn't make it grow. It sprang up overnight. It died overnight. Jonah, you're worried about something you had nothing to do with. Shouldn't I have concern For the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, shouldn't I be concerned about all those children in Nineveh? What about the animals in Nineveh? They're innocent. Shouldn't I be concerned about them? They've done nothing to deserve punishment. Shouldn't I be concerned about them too? Which is really interesting. God cares about animals. I like that. God cares about the young lady who's dog died and and, and it's it's a grief it's a loss God says shouldn't I be care care about that you see God is a God of compassion and in just two sentences he sort of puts Jonah in his place in fact the prophecy ends right there there's nothing more like what happened to Jonah There are those that would say, well, he repented and God restored him. We don't know. We don't have an idea. We're never told. That's one of those ones we'll wait for down the road. The prophecy ends because I think personally maybe Jonah was actually writing this in a lot of abject humility. And he realized there's nothing more to say. But how do you and I respond to God's compassion? Do you and I have compassion on those upon whom God has compassion? The Ninevites, a violent, warmongering, vicious people upon whom God had compassion. Ninevites, the homeless, the sick, widows, orphans. Single moms, single dads, addicts, the LGBTQ community, liberals, Democrats, Republicans, conservatives, the undocumented, Muslims, refugees, pro-choice, pro-life. The person who got the job or the promotion ahead of you That neighbor, their music is too loud. I hope Cousin Scott's not there. He bugs me. As long as a person on this planet has breath, 
They are the objects of God's compassion and grace. And they should be the recipients of mine as well if I really follow Jesus. Now, compassion doesn't mean I just live and let live and agree with everything someone says or does and it's all okay. But it does mean that I pray for them. Even if I disagree with them vehemently, I can pray for them, I can love them, I can be kind to them. I can see them as I should see myself as an image bearer created in the image of God because we both, we are. I can find ways when it crosses my path to find ways to minister to them and to care for them despite any choices they make, despite any positions they may hold. If God puts them in my path, I should be kind and compassionate to them even if I disagree with them. I may have to sometimes, in tough love, watch that person experience consequences of bad choices, and yet I shouldn't gloat over that. I should hurt for them. I shouldn't demean them. I shouldn't uh, you know, hurt them and, and, and talk bad about them and slander them. Compassion means I care about them even if I disagree with them, even if they've hurt themselves and their choices, I can still have kindness toward them. What if God would have shown Jonah the exact same treatment Jonah wanted for the Ninevites? What if God treated me the same way I've treated others? I'm so glad he doesn't. I'm so glad he didn't. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates his love to us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies of God, while we were outside of God's family, while we were outside of God's home, while we were living on our own, while we were doing our own thing, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's compassion. That's love. That's grace. That's what God wants for you and me. If I learn anything from this book of Jonah, it's that I should be a person of compassion. In my, my study, I ran across a, a poem and I know in seminary it's three points in a poem, but this is four points in a poem. I ran across this piece of poetry. It's actually part of a collection of poetry written in 1968 by a man by the name of Thomas John Carlyle. And the poem that I am going to read from you, the title of the poem is actually the, the title of the collection of poetry. And I want you to look at the title on the screen here. I think it's a, a, a title... There it is. I think it's a title that really is making us look in the mirror. You, Jonah. Is there some Jonah in each of us? Listen to what the, the poem. It's four stanzas. You, Jonah. The great intruder. It is exasperating to be called so persistently when the last thing we want to do is get up and go, but God elects to keep haunting like some holy ghost. 
addiction. Consistently, Jonah chided his stupid and incredible creator for his addiction to mercy as though it were some miracle drug. A deity ought to be dependably capricious. To keep the natives in line, a G-bomb on an overpopulated slum would wipe out delinquency in a hurry. Naturally, Nineveh would make a perfect target once he himself was safely outside. Count to the Almighty. Think twice before you pardon. Men repent, even in ashes, but repent again of their repentance. Take the wiser bias of my advice. Confine your charity to such good neighbors as your humble servant. Coming around. And Jonah stalked to his shaded seat and waited for God to come around to his way of thinking. And God is still waiting for a host of Jonas in their comfortable houses to come around to his way of loving. Father, it's not comfortable to have our compassion challenged. It's not comfortable to look in the mirror and realize there's some Jonah in each of us. But it's necessary. And I pray, Lord, that as we just allow the, the final two chapters of this short book, the short minor prophet, to sink in, that we would think deeply about how we treat the Ninevites in our lives and that we would not get angry or call your compassion wrong or evil but we would take stock of how we can be yet more compassionate remember you've set the standard it's a standard far higher than we can reach and yet we should daily strive for that standard may we be people of compassion who follow your example. In Jesus' name, amen.